0: Discussed. We was on the subject of the Holy Spirit, and specifically over in the first couple of chapters of Acts. And I guess one reason I've got this on my mind is because of some of the programs I've uh, seen on TV in the last few weeks too. That uh, uh, one man on Sunday night, uh, you know Jimmy Swagger that I think is a very sincere individual. I think he's extremely sincere, and very moral individual, and in all. And yet he definitely believes that. You know, the Holy Spirit is speaking through people today and working miracles through them and all. And, and his whole program this past Sunday night was tied into that thing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he in fact he doesn't believe that any, he stated plainly, that a church cannot win souls or be effective or grow or anything unless they've got, you know, the Holy Spirit directly working working through them, you know. And and he he made it clear that he believes he can be saved without having that baptism of the Holy Spirit but you're not going to be any, do any good for God or you're not going to have any power you're not going to have any power to live the Christian life or, or anything of that nature and by the time he got through, even though he would accept you as a safe person without all of that, if you was in a congregation and him believing that, you'd feel like definitely the low man on the totem pole if you didn't have what he's got, in other words, that when it came to, to serving God, and again I want to make clear that, that I believe he personally is very sincere now, I don't believe all that believe that are and everything, but I believe he is he, he's, he's very, very sincere and I think he's doing a lot of good that he's it's sort of like we mentioned about fellowship that, uh, that you can be wrong on some things and right on so many things and he's right on Jesus and he's right on salvation in Jesus and he's right on morality and he's doing a, lot, doing a lot of good there but I'd like to study that and what I'd like to the way I'd like to go at it is to look at some verses that people will go to when they talk to you today about the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and miracles and things of this nature and then I'd like to look at what happens when we look at the total context of those verses that uh, every statement is first of all a, a statement but second of all it, it's in a particular context and then that context is even in a broader context and so a verse in the Bible is first of all in a chapter which is second of all in a book which is third of all in the New Testament which is in final analysis in the Bible and so you, you have to look at it from the standpoint of that entire text to get a, to get a feel for it. And the first place I'd like you to turn to is over here in Matthew 10 and let's see Matthew 10 and verse uh, 8 I believe I have here Matthew, Matthew 10 and verse 8 and then verses uh, 19 and 20 uh, Mark, would you read that please? Matthew 10 and verse 8, and then verse 19 and 20. Okay. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Oh, wait a minute. Did I give you the right place? Matthew 10 and verse 8. Oh, i 8.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> 10 and 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give and then verse 19 and 20 Um, but when they arrest you do not worry about what to say or how to say it at that time you will be given what to say for it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you okay now notice the verse there verse 8 the statement there heal the sick raise the dead cleanse those who have leprosy drive out demons okay And then in verse 20, uh, 19 and 20, it says, don't even worry when you speak. The Holy Spirit will will speak through you. Okay, then another passage. Turn over here at uh, Matthew 17 and 14 through 21. Matthew 17 and uh, 14 through 21. Okay, Nancy, would you read
2: that, please? When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He is an epileptic and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. O oh, unbelieving of the first generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the body, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you.
0: Okay, now notice what we've read. In uh, Matthew 10 and 8, he makes a statement about healing the sick, raising the dead, uh, cleansing lepers, driving out demons. Uh, He said that when you speak, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. You want him not to think before you speak. And then we have an example of uh, them bringing somebody with a demon uh, to his disciples. And the disciples couldn't drive out the demon. Jesus drove out the demon. They wanted to know why they couldn't do it. And he said, because of your little faith. And if you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you know, you could do such and such. The argument then is that doing miracles and... uh, the Holy Spirit working through you in this way is a matter of your faith that for those who have enough faith then those things will work through them and so you have to really believe and have enough faith if they don't work then it's because of the lack of faith on your part okay now let's see what happens when we put a context to that and the first statement we read was in Matthew 10 and verse 8 let's go back and look at Matthew 10 and beginning with verse 1 and uh, Jack, would you read that uh, Matthew 10 and verses 1
3: through 5? And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to <laughs> cast them out, and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans.
0: Okay, now look at the context here. He's told them in verse 8 that we read, Heal the sick, etc. And then in verse 19 and 20, you know, that don't even worry when you speak. You know, the Holy Spirit will speak through you. But when we go back to the very beginning of the chapter, it says he called his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority. It doesn't say that he called up Jimmy Swaggart or, or myself or anybody else on this Bible. It says he called the 12 disciples, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and heal every disease and sickness. Now the names, lest anybody have any doubt who he was talking about, the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and he names the twelve apostles. Then to those twelve apostles, he continues on, and tells them to go take this message to the lost sheep of Israel, verse 6, and preach this message, verse 7. The kingdom of heaven is near. Then they were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse and all. So, what you prove in Matthew 10 is that Jesus gave authority to the twelve apostles to go preach a message and then to prove that that message was from God by doing those miracles and that he told the the apostles that the Holy Spirit would speak through them and they were going to be used in a special way. So it's one thing to read that as if he's speaking it directly to me another thing to look at the context and see that in context, he's speaking directly to the 12 apostles. All right. Now another thing, look at verse 8. If we're, if we're going to have that for, uh, for us today. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Okay? Now, notice when he sent the apostles out they could heal all sicknesses, in fact that's the statement that's made over there when he first sent them, that they were going out and going to heal all sicknesses, and then he comes down and makes a statement here about uh, healing the sick, raising dead, cleansing those who have leprosy. Well, we know also, we'll find other lists where they also told them to give sight to the blind, and they did. Alright, when the apostles went out, they did exactly the same kind of miracles that Jesus did. Jesus raised the dead, he gave sight to the blind. He cured leprosy. He healed all illnesses that was brought to him. When paralyzed people who had never walked were brought to him, and he told them to, to rise and walk immediately. Their legs were strengthened and they could get up and walk. Well, the apostles did the same thing. When we proceed through the book of Acts and the history of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles, we see them performing exactly the same kind of miracles that Jesus did. And we can see here that he gave them authority. Now. What we learn over in Matthew 17, remember they brought that person that was demon-possessed to the disciples, and it was to the apostles. Well, first of all, we note that the people noted that there was somebody special about the apostles. Why, if all it took was just faith on anybody's part, why bring the man to the apostles? Why didn't Why didn't Jesus tell them that any one of you could do this? But he brought them to the apostles. But what we see is that even with the apostles, on the one hand, the apostles were given this authority, but that authority was conditioned on their faith in the authority. In other words, that he would work through. And that's why that Paul would make statements to Timothy like, don't neglect, neglect the gift of the Holy Spirit that was in, within you, that it operated in condition with his faith. And so it was with the apostles that he told them they could do something. A good example of this is Jesus uh, appears to the uh, disciples, the apostles, out on the sea. And Peter makes a comment and says, if you are the Lord, then command me to come to you. And so Jesus said, come. Now, normally you can't walk on water, but he told Peter to come. And so Peter stepped out on the water and he was walking. But then it said that the wind, Peter began to notice that the wind was steering and the turbulence and all. And he got to thinking about the situation and he doubted and he began to sink. And Jesus reached down and helped him up and said, oh, you have little faith so that Jesus gave them the authority to do things to back up the word that they were preaching so that people would believe it was from God but that authority itself was conditioned on their faith and so when I read that that if you have faith you can do anything I have to keep in mind that's true in faith I can do anything that God gives me the power to do the question is did God give Paul Cook or Jimmy Swagger or Jimmy Baker, or Oral Roberts, did he give any of us the authority to raise the dead and give sight to the blind and to cure leprosy? Well, when I look at the people that propose to do these things, I see them doing things that they call healing, and I hear people giving testimonies, but I do not see any lepers that are cleansed. I do not see any blind people that are given their eyesight. And I do not definitely do not see any dead people that are raised from the dead. In other words, that if those kind of things were done, we wouldn't even have an argument. There would be no debate, no discussion, or anything like that. In fact, if you think about it, it's kind of silly to debate with somebody as to whether or not he could do these things, because he ought to be able to settle the debate at any time. That's the way Jesus handled the debate. He just settled it by going ahead and doing it, and the doing of it was to produce faith in the first place. So we see that, that what happens is... Uh, you know a person is sitting in the audience and the preacher gets up there and, and says you know he'll heal and do these things and the Holy Spirit will speak through you and then he turns over here and reads a passage about if you've got enough faith you could do it but I think you see something entirely different when you look at the whole context and you see that, that he has specifically called twelve apostles and sent them out to preach and then has equipped them with these miracles and all. Another interesting thing to me is that he said freely you have received freely give And it's no secret to anybody that a number of people that propose to do these things today have made a lot of money in the the doing of it. Okay, now, I'd like to come to a couple of other passages and see what happens. Let's come over here first to Acts 2.38. Let's see, Acts 2.38... And uh, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. Okay, Acts 2.38. Okay, hold your place on Acts 2.38 and then flip over and get Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. Okay, uh, Louise, would you read that please, uh, 238 of Acts, and then Ephesians 1, 13,
1: and
2: 14. Oh, see he replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. Right. And, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance unto the redemption of those who are are God's possessions to the praise of his glory.
0: Okay, so Acts 2.38 uh, he concludes the sermon by telling the people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins uh, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then here in Ephesians 1, 13-14, it says, Having believed, you're marked with a seal of promise. And that's the Holy Spirit. And notice now, the Holy Spirit is a guarantee, a proof of our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Okay, let's go back and look at that in its uh, context here. In uh, Acts, the uh, first chapter, Acts, the first chapter, we see that... uh, Uh, Luke starts off by saying Theopolis, I wrote uh, that's chapter 1 verse 1, all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen after his suffering he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs, so that's to these men, that's referring back to the apostles he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God Okay, now, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, verse 6, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he continues on, and in verse 8, he says, you will receive, speaking to the apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, the apostles, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Okay. Okay they go ahead and, and we have another mentioning there uh, one is picked to place replace Judas as one of the apostles and it gives the fact that he had, had to be one that had seen the Lord and and been with him and was witness of his resurrection then Peter stood up and preached to a group there of about a spoke to a group of about 120 and then we come on down uh, to uh, verse 21 where Peter establishes the necessity of replacing uh Judas as one of the apostles. And then uh, it mentions in verse 26, they cast lots, the lots fell to Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. So we end, keep in mind that the book is not written in chapters and verses. We divide it up in that. So the lot, he's added to the eleven apostles. Okay, when the day of Pentecost were come, they were all together in one place. Who is the all there? Well, his last, last people he's mentioned there is the 12 apostles. And that's the who Jesus has appeared to. All right, and then there appeared a, a, a blowing of a violent wind. And verse 3, there seemed to be what seemed to be tons of fire that separated and came down on, to rest on each of them. Who is the them there? Well, we're going to see that. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And they, each one heard them, verse 6, each one heard them speaking in his own language. So you got all these different people there, and everybody hears them speaking in their own language. And verse 8, then how is this, that each of us hears them in his own native language? And it names all the groups of people there. Then in verse uh, 14, look at this. Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the cloud. So we see here that it was the apostles, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on, and then Peter stood up with the eleven. They were the only ones talking. And they began to address the crowd, and they're speaking in such a way that everybody is hearing them speak in his own language. All right, then, as they get near to show you again that it was only the apostles that are talking, as we get down near the end of the sermon, in verse 37... When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? So it's the apostles that are doing the preaching. The apostles have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking to the people. that have got their attention. They're communicating to them in their own language. Uh, the tongues here was not so many syllables that nobody could understand, but they were actually communicating in the a la- the certain, certain very practical thing. They were communicating to them in, the, in their language, and it was Peter and the rest of the apostles that were doing it. And Peter replied, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and your children, all who are far off. All right, now, we come on down, and uh, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. And then, verse 42, notice now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread. And then in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. Okay, now what do we have in the first two chapters of Acts? We have Jesus appearing to the 12 apostles, being with them for a period of 40 days, teaching them things about the kingdom of God, promising them that what John the Baptist has already said is going to come upon you, the Holy Spirit will come upon you he's going to give you power, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth then we see the Holy Spirit comes on the 12 apostles it's obvious and they make it very clear that the apostles are the ones doing the preaching the people direct their question to the apostles, they were mentioned to start with we see that the tongues that they spoke in was the languages of all the people there it served a very practical function Then we notice that after they tell the people to repent and be baptized, and then to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, it drops on down and said many miracles were done through the apostles, they abided in the apostles' teaching, and they stood in all of the apostles. Obviously, everything centers around the apostles in those two chapters. In fact, Acts gets its name uh, going back into antiquity from Acts of the Apostles. And so they are the unique features. Now, the, the question is, What about the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, first of all, we want to note that they believed Acts 2.36. They repented, commanded to repent, and they were baptized before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So So obviously, without any gift of the Holy Spirit at all, through listening to the apostles preach, they came to believe by listening and evaluating the evidence. They came to repent and they were baptized. Okay, then he said, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's involved in that? Well, right now we don't know. We're just at the second chapter. We, we don't know. We just know that they repented, were baptized, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we keep reading. When we get all over here to the Acts, the eighth chapter, Acts, the eighth chapter, and for the first time, we get some, as far as Acts is concerned now, we get some enlightenment about this gift of the Holy Spirit that people got after they were baptized. And so let's come to Acts 8, and beginning with verse 9, and let's see, Barbara, would you read that, uh, 9 through 18?
1: Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay,
0: now, look at what we've read. First of all, we gave two passages. Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 1.13 and 14 where Paul told the church at Ephesus that you have received this Holy Spirit and he is a down payment and he's a guarantee of the truthfulness and all of this, this message that you've received We go back and we look at some context and we see in Acts 1 and 2 that Jesus was speaking directly to the apostles when he told them that the, the, the fulfillment of John's promise John the Baptist who said that there would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit was about to come on them And he said, you're going to receive power. And we see that the apostles were to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ, that they not only were eyewitnesses, they were with him for three and a half years, they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They had been with him for 40 days after his resurrection, and he had taught them about the kingdom. Well, obviously, when they go out with this message, that's great, but who's going to believe it? So he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and give you power. And what was going to happen is that God was going to give the apostles not only the ability to go ahead and present the information, but He was going to prove and confirm that information with the miracles. So we follow on down and we find the apostles present that lesson. They present it in languages that they've never studied or learned. The crowd even recognized that these unlearned Galileans are speaking to us, and everybody's hearing them in, in, in his own language. It's obvious that only only the apostles are speaking. Then the apostles tell them to repent and be baptized for the mystery of their sins receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then we notice, though, that they continue in the teaching of the apostles. Obviously, everybody's not on par with the apostles. Then it says they stand back in awe of the apostles and that many miracles were done through the apostles. So everybody's standing in awe. The question that remains is that when they were baptized and they were told they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, what exactly was he talking about? what was to happen to these people well we read through the book of Acts and the first place we come to that really deals with this is when we hit the 8th chapter in other words we have the telling of the uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit but no real explanation of it well the question that uh, you might ask yourself is that if you were there in that audience on Pentecost and Peter had told you that this was a fulfillment of the prophet Joel and then You saw them speaking in languages if they hadn't learned. And they had just made the statement that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your old men will see dreams and visions and all. And then they tell you that you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What would you expect? Well, if I'd have been in that audience, I'd expected the gift of tongues. Or to have dreams or visions or the Holy Spirit to do something of a miraculous nature through me. Just like he was working with the apostles. That's what I would expect. Okay, we come on down. And we note what happens is that here's a group, Philip goes in. Now it's interesting, we skipped over a passage that I'll let you read on your own in the sixth chapter. Because Philip is performing miracles. But if you read the sixth chapter, you find out that Philip had hands laid on him by the apostles. In fact, just flip back there real quick into the sixth chapter, where uh, beginning with uh, verse 1, they talk about the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews. Uh, the debate that was going on on the distribution of food there, a little bias. The 12, that's the apostles, verse 2, gathered all the disciples and said, it's not right for us to elect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. It says, choose seven men from among you. They're known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. Okay? They, this proposal, verse 5, pleased the whole group. And they chose, and it names the individuals there, okay? And then they presented them, verse 6, to the apostles. And they prayed and laid hands on them. Okay, now the next thing you know, Stephen is preaching. And then we have Philip preaching and performing miracles. After the apostles lay hands on them. Okay, but then in Acts the 8th chapter, Philip goes into Samaria. And he performs miracles and he preaches. But the interesting thing is that when he converts people and they believe as a result of seeing the miracles and they're baptized they can't perform miracles they're just standing there amazed at Philip so then Peter and John hear about this new group that's been converted and so Peter and John come in and then they realize that they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet and so they prayed for them and laid hands on them and then Simon's taking this all in he used to be a sorcerer and he's just astounded by all these miracles and so it says Simon noticed that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, and he actually wanted to buy that power. Well, Simon had already been baptized. He didn't have the power to lay hands on anybody, and he didn't have the power to perform miracles. And Simon noticed that the only ones that could do anything were those that the apostles laid their hands on. What happened in the early church, they did not have the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. And when they would go in and convert a group of people, the apostles would lay hands, and they were given the authority by God to impart these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, then the apostles had to be on their way. They were traveling all over the civilized world of that day. And so they would lay hands, and and here is an individual that would have the gift of prophecy. He's going to do the preaching for that group. Here's somebody else that had the gift of miracles, somebody the gift of tongues, somebody the gift of interpreting tongues, uh, somebody the gift of knowledge or discernment. Between the group of these people with gifts, God would speak the word and then confirm the word. And that's the only way they had of getting this message of the New Covenant because it didn't have a New Testament. It it hadn't been written yet. And so God was communicating through these people as the Holy Spirit was, was speaking through them. And the apostles, everywhere they converted a group of people, they would lay hands on individuals and impart these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's come up to 19 of Acts. And notice, remember the other passage that we had looked at was in Ephesians 1. And we saw there in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, that he told them that they had this Holy Spirit as a down payment or a guarantee of the message itself.
1: You read 6 and 16, where they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands yeah. on them.
0: Yeah. Philip, and, uh, Philip and, and Stephen. Okay, look at uh, the 19th chapter. and Let's see... Uh, beginning with 1 through, uh, through about uh, 11. Okay? Uh, 19 and 1 through 11. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit and you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the city and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Okay notice now again Paul leaves Corinth right goes to Ephesus now this is the same group that Paul wrote a letter to that we read and he meets a group of believers there but Paul notices something right away they don't have any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and so that that strikes his curiosity so he says did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed and they said, no, we have not even heard where there is the Holy Spirit. Notice, you can actually come to believe in Jesus without even hearing about the Holy Spirit. And so they hadn't even heard uh, about the Holy Spirit, but they had yet come to believe, and they had repented, and they had been baptized. But apparently, whoever had taught them, and right up before here in the 18th chapter, we had Apollos, who had been corrected, because he was still teaching John's baptism, and John's baptism was immersion, just like the baptism starting in Acts. But the difference was when they were baptized by John, they were baptized with a concept in their mind where they were still looking forward to the Messiah, whereas beginning with Pentecost, the concept in their mind was "The Messiah has come." And he has died, been buried, and been resurrected. And so they had the concept of the death, the burial, and the resurrection in their mind as they were baptized. But that was the only only difference. And so he noticed that they had not been taught uh, accurately on this point. And so he takes them and notice now that on hearing verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of of the Lord Jesus. So they were baptized. But notice the Holy Spirit. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And there were all about twelve men. We note that even after Paul baptized them in the name of Jesus, they still had just been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. They did not receive the gift of the Holy Spirit until Paul placed his hands on them and imparted that gift. Okay, now, what we see then when we look at everything, uh, beginning in Acts 2 and on into Ephesians, and then considering the whole concept of the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can see that these apostles were used in a very special way. And that they actually had the ability to bestow on others these gifts who were laid on the hands. And so far as the New Testament is concerned, there is absolutely no one other than the apostles that had this ability. Even like Philip, who had the hands laid on him by the apostles and was performing miracles, he could not himself impart those gifts. Now, there's one different unique situation in there and I won't, we won't turn I'll leave this for you to, to read in, the, in its entire context we'll just go over it and that's with Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter now at the house of Cornelius the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his household and they speak with tongues without having been touched by the apostles but it's a very unique situation As you get into Acts 10, you find that up to this point, no Gentiles have been converted. It took a miracle to get Peter to even go to the house of Cornelius. He had to be persuaded to even go into his house and even said in Acts 10 and 28, that you know it's not lawful that I even come here. All right, he preached to them and the people believed. But the problem is he had some fellow Jews that did not want to baptize those Gentiles. And so then the Holy Spirit came on them. And then Peter turned to the Jews and says, Can you forbid the water now? That those that have received the Holy Spirit like us might be baptized. And of course they stepped back and then Peter commanded them to be baptized. All right, again, why were the gifts of the Holy Spirit there? We have the case of the first Gentiles being converted. And the gifts were poured out there as proof to the Jew that the Gentile was to receive the gospel. right now as you get into the 11th chapter from that point into the 15th chapter Peter has to defend the fact that he has baptized Gentiles and that the apostles are now going to convert Gentiles and every time he talks about it he goes back to that event that happened in other words that God's proof that the Gentiles was going to come in was the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out in fact turn over here to uh, Acts the uh, 15th chapter And I believe it's verses uh, 7 through 9. Here they're having this big debate. It's over circumcision, but Peter's doing the talking at this point. It said, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he had accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Okay, now notice how their hearts were purified is by faith. But why was the Holy Spirit poured out? The Jew did not want to accept the Gentile in on an equal basis. And so God poured the Holy Spirit out convince the Jew that the Gentile was to come in. Okay, now from this point on, by the time we get to Acts 19, that group in Ephesus is Gentiles. And those people are converted and the way they receive the Holy Spirit is by the Apostle Paul laying his hands on them. And that was true with each place that Paul went or any of the other Apostles. And so you have two times where the Holy Spirit is poured out without laying on the hands of the Apostles. Once at the very beginning on the Pentecost, When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles, just as Jesus promised them, because they were God's chosen instruments, they were going to write the the New Testament with their stamp of approval on these books, they were going to guide the the development of the church, they were going to perform miracles to confirm the teaching. They also had the ability to impart these gifts through the laying of hands. Then you have the incident, after about the first eight years of the church, God now was ready for the Gentiles to come in. The Jews formed the foundation for the church. And so then Peter goes to Cornelius, the first Gentile to be converted, and he's very reluctant. And the Jews that are with him do not want to receive those Gentiles in. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter turns to his fellow Jews and said, can you forbid water that these may not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit the same as we? And so the Holy Spirit was poured out as an evidence or proof to those Jews that the Gentiles would receive the gospel. All right. It never happened that way again to the Gentiles. In fact, over in Acts 15, about another seven or eight years later, when Peter is talking, he still has to go back to that event. In other words, it hasn't happened again. He has to go back to that event that happened seven or eight years before as proof that the Gentiles are coming in. You know that by my mouth that God said they were to receive it, and then God bore witness, and this event happened. And then when we come from Acts 15 on through the book of Acts, we get to Ephesus... And we have some Gentiles there converted by Paul. And Paul imparts these gifts of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of his hands. Okay, what we have then now is we proceed through the rest of the New Testament. When you get to Corinth or to Thessalonica or to any of these other places, you're dealing with a city where an apostle like Paul went to Corinth in Acts 18 and he did there what he did every place else. He always imparted these gifts through the laying on of his hands and so then Paul writes a letter to the church at Corinth and when you read about those people at Corinth, those miraculous gifts they also had something else that you and I have, don't have today Paul had started the church at Corinth and he did for them just like he would have did for the Thessalonians and every other place he went but now I'd like to turn into 1 Corinthians and notice a, a few things concerning these gifts that was imparted to the best that we can see from the New Testament through the, lay, through the land of the apostles hands Turn over to 1 Corinthians the 12th chapter. Okay, now look at the uh, gifts here. Verse 7 of chapter 12. uh, To each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge. And then there was to another faith gifts of healing miraculous powers prophecy distinguishing between spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues or languages to still another the interpretation of languages or tongues all these are the work of the one the same spirit he gives to each one just as he determines alright then he goes ahead to explain that just as the body is one body with many members and they serve a function for the good of the body that was the same as the church there they had a lot of members and all these gifts but the gifts were not for the glorification of any individual it was there to serve a function within the body in conjunction with these other members of the body. Right? what was happening at Corinth these people that had these gifts are kind of showing out a little bit and they apparently have a big debate going over what is the greatest gift and a little bit of uh, argument involved there and so he's having to correct them and tell them to use these gifts in a right way and to use them for the good of the church. But then he comes on down to the 13th chapter. And he says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. He said, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a, a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have faith to move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give my, uh, all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to flames, but have not love, I'm nothing." In other words, he says that, that, I don't care how many miraculous gifts you've got, if you understand everything, if you've got faith to move a mountain, if you can speak in tongues, if you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong. In other words, the end result of these gifts was to communicate the information to them, and to prove that information, but the, what God wanted done was that information taken into the human heart, and submitted to them. And he says, if you don't realize this, that the ultimate goal of all that information is to teach you to love, and then you love, then in your speaking in tongues, you're just a bunch of noisy gongs or clanging cymbals, and the fact that you understand everything because of some gift, that really doesn't prove anything, and the fact that you can move a mountain with your faith, that doesn't prove anything. That the important thing is listen to the message and take that message to heart. So then he defines love in verse 4, starting with verse 4, love is patient, etc. Gives the definition of love. Okay, love never fails, verse 8. But what about these miraculous gifts? Love never fails, verse 8. Whether prophecies, they will cease. Whether there are tongues, they will be stilled. Whether there is knowledge, the gift of knowledge, he's talking about here in his context, it will pass away. Knowledge will always be here, all through eternity. But the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift of knowledge would pass away. He said, now we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, that which is imperfect will disappear. All right, now, I'd like to read the definition of that word perfect. And I'm reading from Vine's Expository Dictionary. It's a verb to bring to an end by completing or perfecting. Okay? It means perfect in the sense of being complete. So, what he's saying is that. At this time, we have imperfect information. We have incomplete information. And so, this prophet is given a part of the truth, and this prophet is given a part of the truth. Paul was writing, James was writing, Peter was writing. But when you had the complete, when complete truth had been revealed, then the need for these gifts would be done away with. And so they were going to cease. And what he does, he compares the church at this stage to a child. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I become a man, I put away childish things behind me. Now, right then, when Paul is speaking, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Right at this point in the church, Remember, Jesus told the apostles that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And truth was to be given gradual. In fact, he said, I didn't teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it. In John 16, 12, and 13. And just like the, the great truth about the uh, Gentiles coming in. It was eight years after Pentecost before God revealed that. And even then, it took all kinds of arguments and debates with the Jews to get that point across. It took a lot of debating and a lot of argument to convince the Jews that the law of Moses was nailed to the cross and that you couldn't bind circumcision and things like that on on people today. So truth was given in a gradual way. So at the time that Paul writes this, these people have not yet come to a conclusion with all the truth. They don't have all the facts. They can't sit down with everything like you and I have got now. In fact, we can only speculate at what the Corinthians had. From the best that we can figure out, all they had was First and Second Corinthians at that time. And Paul's answering specific questions that they actually have when he writes to the Romans. The indication is that they've never received a letter from an apostle. That thats the reason he explains so much in detail the Christian system and all. And so, all of these people are getting these letters and then over a period of an entire generation these letters will be copied and we get to the end of the first century before we find any church with all of the letters and so God is revealing truth through the Holy Spirit but his goal is to eventually reveal all the truth and then they would have all of that truth but he tells them here that one thing they need to keep in mind that the miraculous gifts were not an end within themselves they were a means to an end the end and the final analysis that people might realize that the greatest thing in the world is love that's it the the greatest accomplishment of any Christian is to love and whenever enough truth had been revealed and God had dealt with all their problems and was able to convince people of that great truth uh, and all of this is confirmed then these gifts would have served their purpose now he comes into the 14th chapter Tells them to follow the way of love eagerly. Tells them to desire spiritual gifts. Especially the gift of prophecy. Now I'm going to look at this because I want you to know how different what he says here is from those that claim these gifts today. He said anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to man but to God. Indeed, chapter 14 and verse 2. Indeed no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit but everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening and encouragement. Okay, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in tongues, notice now, unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? unless I bring you some revelation of knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking to the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner. I am a foreigner, let's see, to uh, to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret uh, what he says. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among you, who do not understand, say amen to your thanksgiving, since he does not know what you're saying? You may be given thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Through the law it's written, through the men of strange tongues, and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. Then look at verse 22 tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers prophecy is for believers not for unbelievers and then he goes on if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in will they not say that you're mad but if unbelievers or someone who does not understand comes in while everyone is prophesying he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all Verse 26, When we, what then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time. And someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Notice now, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak but must be in subjection as the law says if they want to inquire about something they should ask their own husbands at home for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church Okay, now let's pause there and look at what we've read we've seen that those gifts were passed on through the laying on the apostles hands we have recognized that that they were at a time when they didn't have the new testament hadn't been written yet and when they converted people, they would lay hands on them and part these various gifts. And then we saw how that through these people with the gifts, then God would communicate his message, and the miracles would prove or confirm that the message was from God. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, we see that those gifts are under the control of those who inhabit it, so much so that they can actually misuse it. And you actually have a services where two or three are speaking at the same time, or more sometimes. So Paul rebukes them. Now the first thing he does to them is he lets them know that gifts are a means to an end. That the ultimate goal of God is that all Christians come to love. That's his goal. That's the mature, complete, perfect individual. When you reach that point, when you realize that the end result of all God's teaching is to get you to love. And to the degree you fulfill it, to that degree we're fulfilling the plan of God. So the gifts had to prove that the message was from God and give you the message, but the goal is to get you to love. All right, then he drops into the 14th chapter and says that he's going to tell them how to exercise these gifts, and he's actually rebuking them. Now, notice some things that happen here. First of all, he said, if you're speaking in a tongue, but there's no interpreter there, or you're not interpreting, then you're better off just keeping your mouth shut. He said, I'd rather speak just a few words that somebody can understand than 10,000 that they can't understand. Not only that, he said, if an unbeliever walks in and you're speaking in a tongue that he doesn't understand and there's no interpreter, he's going to think you're mad. So Paul says, you're actually going to hurt the cause by doing this when somebody comes in that doesn't know the language itself and you don't have an interpreter. So the first thing he says to them, there should never be any speaking in tongues in the church. Unless there's somebody there that knows that language and can interpret that language and they can understand it, otherwise they just keep shut. Another thing he said was that you're never to speak except one at a time. It hey, should be anymore more than one speak at a time. Another thing he said that dealing with their public assembly there when they were come together, that women were not to be speaking at all in that situation. In fact, he wrote Timothy. And told him that, uh, the, that the woman was not to teach or exercise authority over the man. In other words, we find women with the gift of prophecy and the other gifts and the gift of tongues and all. But it, when it came to a public assembly where it may be used in such a way as to convey any authority over the man at all, that they were restricted in that realm and so he had told them that when you come together as a church and assembly that you're to keep silent he told Timothy the same thing to tell the women that they're not to teach or to exercise authority over the man All right, now compare that with what goes on in the name of Holy Spirit gifts today my experience has been whether it was with the full gospel businessmen fellowship or any of the various churches I've been into and I've been into a number of of the various churches that do it is that number one invariably every one of them will have more than one speaking at a time they might have any number speaking in fact I've been in where when they have prayer that they have 10 or 12 people praying at the same time well he's he's saying right there number one that you need to have when you have prayer do it or speaking either one do it one at a time so that what you're doing can be understood and he said that you shouldn't be praying in a tongue and I noticed on uh, the Jimmy Swagger program last Sunday night when I watched it they had several people out there praying, and praying in tongues, and every now and then, he'll speak in tongues, nobody knows what he's saying. Well, according to this here, unless he's going to say something that somebody can understand, he ought to be saying it. And there ought to be several other people out there speaking at the, at the same time. Not only that, my experience has been, when I go into these groups like that, that most of the time, well more than half of the talking is by women. Well, that's in direct conflict with what he says here. But my experience, in fact, in surveys that have been done on this, about eighty percent of it, eighty to eighty-five percent, is actually the women that are doing doing the talking and the services. And so you've got that in direct conflict with this. Next, tongues were actually, he said, to be assigned to the unbeliever. And we see that happen on Pentecost. That when they went out to communicate with somebody, and they didn't know the language, and they could, in a miraculous way, were given the ability to communicate to that person in his language then that actually was a sign to that unbeliever. And also the indication is here that when they spoke and the Holy Spirit spoke through them in the language of the other person that their own personal understanding was unfruitful. In other words, they didn't unless they somebody interpreted, they didn't necessarily know what was being said on that point. So in in looking at it we see that number one that when we talk about the Holy Spirit that there were specific statements of authority given to the apostles. The apostles were given the authority to pass these gifts on through the laying on of hands. We've seen that these gifts were to give the message and to confirm the message that they were to cease whenever all that which is perfect in the sense of complete had come. In other words they were speaking in part now when they had the completed information those gifts were to cease and to be done away with. We also see that all the way through here, the apostles were the obvious special one. And for those today that would say, well, Jesus is the same today as he's always been. Well, that's true. He is. But he doesn't make people today like he made Adam. Uh, the first human beings were a miraculous creation. Then there was a natural order of reproduction. The first trees, a miraculous creation, a natural order of reproduction. The first animals, a miraculous creation, then a natural order of reproduction. The first time that God gives his word, obviously it has to come in a miraculous way, but then once it's given, then there's a natural order of reproduction, so much so that Jesus would say, the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. Now, turn over to one other passage here, in uh, Ephesians, and want to note here that, in the early church, in the first century, that here is a church where they have those gifts of the Holy Spirit that we have read In Ephesians 1. But I want to note that even in this context, that even with those gifts, that the apostles still were the ones that were used in a very special way. And that the others had to depend on the apostles for new revelations and for the authority for whatever it was that they believed and all. Uh, Nancy, would you read that chapter 3, 1 through 5, please?
2: For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, Sure, you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, and it has now been received, been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets.
0: Okay, now notice what he says, verse 3, this mystery, what is a mystery? It just means you don't have all the facts about something. When you get all the facts, it's not a mystery anymore. So, the fact that the Gentiles were to be equal with the Jew was a mystery to the Jew. They didn't understand it. They didn't have all the facts. He said, this mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written, okay? Notice what he says in verse 4. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand. How are they to get their understanding in reading this right here? My insight, Paul's insight into the mystery of Christ. It was not made known to men in other generations, but it's now been revealed, how? By the Spirit, to who? To God's holy apostles and prophets. And then what was the mystery? That the Gentiles were to be heir along with Israel. So what we have Paul saying is that the Holy Spirit was speaking to the apostles and those chosen prophets. And he said, writing to the church there, when you read this information, Then you will understand this mystery that's been revealed to me, and now I'm writing to you. So, we get our understanding by reading the information that the apostles wrote under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And there were others, like Luke wasn't an apostle, for example. But Luke, all Luke would have needed to write his gospel was the gift of discernment. That's it. He tells you at the very beginning that he has talked with all the eyewitnesses, he's read the other materials, and he's pulled it together like a historian. All in the world he needed was the gift of discernment just to make sure that he was accurate and put nothing but truthful information into his, into his letter. But that's all, all he would have needed in order to write that book. And the same is true with other eyewitness material. If you're writing eyewitness material, you don't need the Holy Spirit to dictate every word to you. You just need to be sure that you're putting it down in a right and a correct way. And so when you read eyewitness material in the Bible, you read it from that individual. And the Holy Spirit is actually using him, using his vocabulary, using his personality, and using him as a witness to write this particular material. And so what kind of gift you needed depended on the circumstance. Uh, Another passage that's used is the one in uh, 1426 of John. And it says there that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Well, number one, Jesus never said anything to me. So if the Holy Spirit's going to bring anything to my remembrance, then Jesus said it will have to bring it to my remembrance after I read it in here. But my personal experience is, first of all, that the only thing I remember in here is what I read several times and look over in a very careful way. And, uh, for example, in preparation for our study tonight, I've studied this material any a number of times, But I sat down and and took about an hour to go down there tonight and reread all these verses and put the entire setting and make a few notes and and get that fixed in my mind. And even though I've read it a multitude of times, that uh, it would not come out in an orderly, organized way with one point leading into another, except I did some thinking about it and checking over it in advance. Okay, so he makes that statement to the apostles but we go back again and we can look at the context now for because of time you know I won't, we've already hit you know a whole lot tonight but if you go back in chapter 14 really starts in chapter 13 and that's where the disciples the twelve apostles go with Jesus to eat what we call the Lord's Supper and Jesus washes their feet and sets this example for them in the thirteenth chapter and this whole context of the thirteenth through the seventeenth chapter there Every single solitary word that is said, is said either from Jesus to the apostles, or the apostles to Jesus. There's nobody there. And so when Jesus makes a statement in 1426, he's talking to those 12 apostles, and he's told them this great mission that he has for them, but he knows that they're apprehensive. I mean, can I remember everything? Am I going to be adequate to the job? He says, don't worry about it. I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to send you a counselor. That word counselor or comforter, it's is translated, is a Greek word that would be used in the sense that we would call an attorney or a lawyer today. An attorney is somebody that knows the law and he gives you advice and he might prod your memory a few times. Just like when we see people on the witness stand and they've got their attorney sitting right next to them and he prods their memory, uh, tells them when to speak and when not to speak. Well, that was, the, that was the same word that was used when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to the apostles. It's going to be like you have a, a lawyer with you all the time. And so he said, he'll give you a, a remembrance of all that I've said. Then he continues on and tells them in Acts the 16th chapter that I didn't teach you all truth because you were not yet ready for it. But the Holy Spirit will guide you on into all truth. So, the apostles have been told that the Holy Spirit would give them a remembrance of all Jesus taught them, and then he would guide them on into all truth. When you get over to Paul's letters, you're going to have Paul sometimes make a statement that the Lord said, now I say such and such, and I have the Spirit of God. And he made a distinction on something that Jesus had already said, and something that Jesus had not dealt with. For example, in that, in that 1 Corinthians 7, Jesus never dealt with the subject of marriage between believers and unbelievers. Because Jesus lived and died under the law of Moses. The gospel had not yet gone to the Gentile, and there was no need in even deal with that subject. Now the gospel goes to the Gentile, and that becomes a big question. The marriage between believers and unbelievers and pagans and all, and so Paul, in that entire discussion, he makes clear the part that Jesus has already said. But then now, I say this to you, for example, they wanted to know what happened when a believer was married to an unbeliever. And this unbeliever left because of the fact you were a believer. In other words, here are two pagans, one is converted. And this pagan says, I'm not going to live with you. You know, or as a as a Christian, I didn't marry any Christian. And so Paul answered that and he says, first of all, you want to win that person, and you don't leave them. But he says, if the unbeliever leaves you, you're not under bondage to that person. You're a free. And so he now deals with something that Jesus never had to deal with. And that's a case of where an unbeliever actually leaves a Christian because he will not live with him as a Christian. And he tells that Christian, you're not under bondage. If they leave and they depart, and you've done all you could to keep them there and to reach them, then you're no longer under bondage to that person. Well, if you read that context, Paul makes it very clear that he's giving them something that Jesus did not order. This is part of this truth that the Holy Spirit is guiding them into So, again though, when people use that verse and apply it to themselves, the context is one of where he is speaking directly to the apostles. They may as well go back to the Old Testament and read where God was speaking to Moses and apply that to themselves. God was speaking to Moses or God was speaking to Noah or God was speaking to David. In the New Testament Christ speaks through the apostles and then those chosen prophets and all that they laid their laid their hands on. And I think also to conclude, a thing to keep in mind is that the miracles that they confirmed that message was not a matter of healing somebody in a way that, that they told you that I've got this hurting and I no longer hurt anymore or I've got such and such and you're sitting there with no way of verifying it or checking it out whatsoever. The miracles was going in among a large group of people and taking totally blind people and giving them their sight. Taking totally lame people and having them get up and walk. Taking totally dead people and raising them from the dead. One of the problems I have with uh, what goes on, is like on the program that I mentioned at the beginning, like say with Jimmy Swagger or something, when he gets on the Holy Spirit is that I come from a background of you know, I'm of, of, of skepticism and all in the background and I know from my, the type of books I have read and the material and everything that uh, when people who are not believers see that they can actually see right through it in other words they're not it's, it's people that are already believers and all in that that believe that but then what they do these people are not students of the Bible, so before they even come to the Bible, they're prejudiced, are, and, and they think, well, if Oral Roberts can get up here and do all these fake things that I can see right through, well, then obviously 2,000 years ago, those people were just as gullible, just as naive, and the same thing happened, so it becomes a discredit to the individual that's not studied in the Bible. And does not think of it in terms of the type of miracles and the reasons for it and and things of that nature. It actually becomes something that is a mark against Christianity. And also, like Paul said, even when they did speak in tongues, when somebody comes into a service who's not a Christian, and you've got people wandering all over the place and and speaking in syllables and things like that, and everything just seems to be uh, chaos from a standpoint of getting information into somebody's mind, that's to, it, if a person has that background, that's fine. But if he don't, it's probably going to run him off. And we can probably only guess at the amount of people that have been run off as a result of coming in contact with something that really did not accurately represent what the Bible was in the first place. Or what Christianity was, I should say. What
3: it was all for to start with was to prove the one that
0: was doing those miracles was sent from God, and to prove what He's saying. But if you just think about it, everybody that was healed—I mean, well, people don't die. Well, that everybody, every one of those people are dead. So obviously, they all got sick again. And those people that were raised from the dead—what were they really saving them from? They weren't saving them from death because they were only going to die again in a few years. The, the only reason was to prove that that man had a message from God. And that's another thing that, just like the group that we set in, you know, at Cookville, they think of these miracles from a standpoint of, of God wanting to keep you healthy, you know, and and it's and getting you healthy, and you can be healthy and all. But the fact is, you're going to die. And these people acknowledge that. and well people don't die you don't die of old age you die of some disease old age just means it gives you enough time that sooner or later you contact the disease it's going to kill you and as we get older our immune system wears out just like everything else about us and so we become susceptible to i mean look at the thing with flu what do they say when the flu right before flu season they say the elderly and the sick and, and young babies know get them a flu shot but if you're a healthy person you know, it's a matter of choice. Yeah, they know you can make it, you can make it through. But the, man, they recommend all elderly people take a flu shot because their system is not as strong as it was at, at one time. So when they say that, they actually have a contradiction because every last one of them, they're going to die. And they've got, they've got to get sick to die. And just is the group that we, when you look at them, at 55 years of age, they just, they look like everybody else at 55. And at 60, and at 65, and 70, and in the final analysis, uh, my experience has been, and, and just an observation, if the people that claim those miracles are any healthier than others, I can't see it. You know, I know the ones that we know here that, that are tied into that, and they have high blood pressure and various other type problems, and sometimes they even sneak and go to the doctor and all, but uh, they have the same problems that, that, that everybody else. In fact, when the government looks at religious groups, there's a lot of studies going on. The two groups that are being studied by the federal government right now, because they are healthier than other groups, is the Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons. Well, it's not because of anything miraculous, both the Seventh-day Adventists and the Mormons put a tremendous amount of emphasis on diet and a healthy lifestyle, and it shows. uh, uh, It's a matter of statistics that Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons have less than half the cancer rate and the heart attack rate and live longer. Than the average person in the population. So obviously there's something to a healthy diet. And, 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 and a Sunday minister of Mormon, the one would tell you that uh, that's how they've that is through their, their diet and their healthy lifestyle. Let me ask you in the the writings of about the early church, you know, after the the Bible was finished, the New Testament was finished, is there any references made to the works of the Holy Spirit after that? After the apostles. You, there's, no, there's no mention and then you come down for a period of years and you begin to pick up but it's never raising the dead in other words after the apostolic age you don't have more raising the dead or anything oh there's claims just like you have today but you don't have anything verified or anything like that when it comes to raising the dead giving sight to the blind or or any of that kind of thing you know that you just have these individuals like all through the years the roman catholic church makes these claims but they've got a pope every... I'm 48 now, and ever since I've been an adult, I've kept up with their popes. And if there's any one of them that's ever raised the dead or gave sight to the blind or anything, I don't know anything about it. And the same is true with the, the group that called themselves apostles in Salt Lake City. You know, that if they do anything... Uh, today, our news is so such that if you gave sight to a blind, it'd be in the newspaper or, or any of those. Or cured a... Man, look at the leper colonies that we've got today and uh, look at all the places where they're dying of various diseases and uh, in fact you know the interesting thing Jimmy Swaggart two weeks before this one that I heard him last week he was in some country in South America and you know what he was doing when he was preaching? preaching through an interpreter. I couldn't believe it. I thought I, he, he claims that yeah, and he was speaking in English then you had to wait in fact I only watched about a third of the program because it's not. It was. It was too slow. You know, you got to speak and then wait for this guy to interpret, and I can't understand what he's saying. And then he. It's, it's just makes for a real slow process. You know, and I thought, man, if ever there was a chance to use this gift of tongues, that should have been it. But he was sure speaking uh, through an through an interpreter. So that's a sure sign that he didn't have what he to have. Right. He might speak in something, but he obviously does not. If ever he was going to use it, that's the way the apostles used it. Uh, that would have been the way. Uh, so far as the gifts down through the years. There's some very interesting study that you might do on pagan religions. That the pagan religions, even at the time of Jesus and before, they spoke in tongues, they claimed all these miracles and things, and their tongue speaking was the same kind of thing that you hear today. They would go into an ecstasy, and then from those ecstasies that they would they would speak in syllables, uh, they would have visions, uh, they would prophesy, and you can go back over to the Old Testament and, and read. In fact, i tell you what. Next, next week, we'll take a look at some things in the Old Testament. They had all of that in the Old Testament. They always had prophets who claimed that they were speaking by God and who proclaimed miracles and everything. And then they were always in contention with the true prophets like Isaiah and all. But they, there's, they, those people have always been there. And like I said at the beginning, that many, 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 maybe even most of the people involved in that are very sincere. Your mind operates on what it believes is right, whether or not it's right. And if, if you walk out in the dark, and there's a stick over there, and, and somebody's convinced you that that's a snake, your heart is going to beat faster, and you're going to react to it. In fact, uh, Barbara was reading something the other day, let me see if I can hear book for Yeah, somewhere in this here on how to win over your emotions and in showing the power of the emotions he gave an example of where people who had been bitten by snakes in some countries where there's a lot of poison snakes and they believed it was a poison snake that they actually foamed at their mouth and began to draw up and have all the effects and as soon as they became convinced that it was not a poison snake it was all over I read something and I lost my source on this, but years back I read a book on uh, India and it gave how many thousands of people die of snake bites every year and it sticks in my mind, I forget the exact statistic and I've lost my source but what's in my mind is somewhere around 50% of the people that died of snake bites were not dying from poison snakes. They believed it and they had the full effects of it and that's why that even when you get a disease if you are scared of that disease and you believe it's going to kill you, there's a good chance it will. And your body will react in keeping with your mind. If you believe you're going to overcome it and if you believe that you're going to come out on top, uh, there's a good chance it will. That you activate, you're, you're just your, body is, your body is so in tune to the mind that it operates on what, what you believe. And, and if, you, if, if I tell you a lie and you believe it, you'll react on it just like the truth. And so when these people go, and the preacher says such and such, if, if the background is such and all that they believe that, they will react in keeping with that belief. And just like when I went to the Full Gospel businessman's Fellowship, and I went forward, and he came over and laid hands on us, laid hands on a bunch of them at the same time. Well, I was the only one that didn't speak. And what they were doing, though, that he was actually coaxing it out of that you know he laid hands and fried and some of them nothing happened. And he says, Don't hold back. You're just letting the devil hold you back. Turn loose. Don't let the devil have your have your tongue. Just go ahead and turn loose. You just gotta let go and feel feel free in the spirit, you know. Well, some of them would turn loose and they said those same syllables that have been said by others. Well what happens, that's the way you and I learn language, we we say what we hear. And so but to my mind, as I watched it, they were coaxed into it well then from that point on they had that gift because anytime they wanted to they could just turn loose and those syllables came out and I believe they honestly believed that you know that, that they had some sort of a gift in, in that sense another danger of the misunderstanding there is that the fact that people listen to preachers without checking what he says in the Bible because they, just like when Jimmy spoke and he was saying that the Holy Spirit has told me to speak this tonight. That's what he said. He said, the Holy Spirit's laid this on my heart. And he gave a couple of visions that night. Well, people just sit back there and, awe. you know, see, if he's got the Spirit, you can't challenge him. You're you're challenging God. But if he's up there as an individual that gets his information only through studying, then that means he may or may not be right, and you have to check him, like, like anybody else. And so there's a tendency to just sit back and listen to what a person says, if you're convinced he has a Spirit if you don't believe the Spirit is speaking through him then the tendency will be to, he's a preacher, he's studied and I'll examine what he says, if it's right I'll accept it, if it's wrong I'll reject it and so from that standpoint and I think if you go back over the years you find that a number of denominations have started on a strong personality that uh, people were convinced that that person had the Holy Spirit and therefore they followed him up from that standpoint
3: I think that's another thing that you see in the and the miracles the ones that claimed and did the miracles in here were all saying the same things they were consistent with one another right and where the that today they're saying
0: all different things out there and you, you don't know what's
2: been. yeah
0: how can the spirit be leading all of them right. in different directions yeah. well you even have a line of pentecostal groups they're all divided up oh. and, and then you've got you go right down here to the Baptist church and he'll get up and although no, he doesn't perform the gifts or anything or claim it, he believes the Holy Spirit is calling and leading him. So he might preach a sermon of on once saved always saved under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, go right down to the, another church and the preacher also under the guidance of the Spirit is rejecting it. The Seventh-day Adventists keep the Seventh-day Sabbath because of their belief that Elijah White had the Holy Spirit. Somebody else is saying that it was nailed to the cross and we don't have to hear it that way and they claim it, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But right, if we came to Peter, Paul and all the Apostles and found them teaching contradictory things, we would take that as evidence that they were not being guided by a central source. In fact, all groups in the field of Christian evidences have used, rightfully so, one of the proofs of the inspiration of the Bible is that you've got these 66 books written by 40 men in three languages and it all falls together to
1: make that one perfect book without any contradiction all the way through.